Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Indeed, today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. I am Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, I'm going to lead off with a question, and that is, where's home for you? When, when I say the word home, what comes to mind? What, where comes to mind? So this, this afternoon, I'm actually headed home to Indiana for the funeral of my Aunt Marilyn. And it, it seems a little bit strange to use the term home for a place where I have not lived since I was six. But Indiana is where I was born. It's where my people are from. It's where my father is buried. It is the place of my roots. And if you say, where's home? I am probably, you know, at the deepest part of my heart going to say, Indiana, it's home. So where's home for you? And how old were you when you moved from home? Or when your home moved, maybe, uh, for the first time. I was six. We were at church. I overheard my parents use the term resigned or resignation. uh, And then people hugged them and said they'd miss them. And so I asked what resignation meant. And my mom gently guided me to sit down in a nearby pew and told me that both she and uh, my dad had resigned from their jobs Uh, She explained what that meant, and then she said we were moving to Florida. And all I could hear and see and feel was uh, Tony the Pony and our Indiana farm and my grandma and grandpa's house with Snooper the dog and our Sunday dinners with them. And I immediately began to feel a sense of loss, a loss of home. So how old were you when you moved from home for the first time, or maybe when home moved for the first time? I'm I'm guessing that as I ask that, you feel what I feel when my little six-year-old self um, considers the the loss of the first place that I remember living, the loss of um, the smells and the the feel of that place and those people and our church and everything and everyone that at that point in time as a child is known to you. And the process of being transplanted is painful enough if your entire family is moving intact from Indiana to Florida with good new jobs waiting for them um, and a really genuinely hope-filled future. Tampa was a great place to grow up. But it's a whole different story if you've already, as a child, lost family members to, let's say, civil war. And you're literally carrying everything you can with no promise of anything, no house, no job for whatever adult you happen to be with, no one waiting with great expectation for your arrival, um, no one there to help you build a new life in a new place. And right now today, as we speak, 70.8 million people around the world are living in that reality, having been forced to leave their home. 25.9 million of them have no prospect of going back to their version of Indiana. They live as refugees who cannot return home. More than half of those 25.9 million people are children. 
Now, when I say I'm going home this afternoon to Indiana to gather with my extended family um, at church and celebrate the life and legacy of my Aunt Marilyn, I know it's going to be safe. I know it's a place of love. Um, I know that uh, Christ is at the center of it, and, and I have great hope, and there's great future, and there's generational love and all of those good things. And my heart breaks, and I bet yours does too. For 25.9 million children right now around the world living as refugees with no home and no prospect of ever going home. I just want us to settle in on that stark reality today for just a moment um, in terms of how we pray and how we consider how we might live more simply that other people might simply live. We're going to talk this morning with Drew Griffin about uh, families, many of them Christian families, um, many of whom the world just frankly doesn't want. Uh, We're going to go and spend a little time this morning in places like Lebanon and in uh, Turkey and in Algeria. So that trip around the world with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine is up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now is Drew Griffin. He is in Manhattan. You can find him on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. You can also find him at ProvidenceMagazine.com. And he's locked out of not only his office where we would have a super quiet connection, he's locked out of his entire building. Drew, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, good morning, Carmen. How are you? Well, I think you sound great. Um, uh, Just give give us a little insight into what you're experiencing today. It's just one of those mornings uh, that uh, would be more befitting a Monday than a Wednesday. Uh, But apparently the computer system that uh, controls our building is out. And so I am uh, relegated to talking to you on the streets of Manhattan. So uh, forgive me. uh, We love it. It's a little noisy or there are sirens or whatever. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the man on the street version of our conversation. And if it gets um, if it gets too um, from a, you know, from a listening perspective, if it just gets too complicated, Paul will just uh, frankly hang up on you. That's what will happen. So okay. right, I, yeah. I just warn you of that in advance. But we're going to pray you get into your building. We could have a whole conversation about um, how, wow, con- computers really control our access to so many things today. Um, and uh, but that will be a different conversation for a different day. Today, let's talk about. Um, I read this really excellent piece uh, by your colleague, Robert Nicholson, my friend from the Philos Project, on Lebanon. I will admit to you, I learned a lot about Lebanon um, in this piece uh, by Robert. Tell us a little bit about the history of Lebanon that that really we need to know to understand what's happening there today. Sure. Well, Lebanon is a, um, a unique country um, in the Middle East in that after World War One. It was uh, largely um, uh, kind of created by the uh, colonial powers uh, as somewhat of a haven of some sorts for uh, for Christians uh, in in the Middle East. It, it was constructed um, constitutionally to have uh, kind of a, a parity of representation uh, between um, uh, Christians and Muslims. Uh, with uh, the Christians holding, uh, by constitutional mandate, 
certain um, uh, offices like the, the, the presidency and and um, so it's it's been kind of a somewhat of a haven uh, for uh, Christians and somewhat I would say almost maybe a quasi-Christian uh, country uh, there in the Middle East. Uh, of course, over the last 70 years of um, uh, independence, it has uh, had a lot of political upheaval um, and uh, a couple of civil wars and is now in the midst of uh, a number of protests um, that uh, uh, you have people uh, within Lebanon who feel disenfranchised. They feel uh, the weight of the other regional powers like Iran pressing into the country. Um, they are dealing with a, um, a massive influx of Syrian refugees from the, the Syrian civil war that are taxing uh, their system. They're, it's taxing their um, uh, capability to provide humanitarian aid. And it's also changing the ethnic and demographic makeup of the country. Uh, whereas, um, you know, you had a, a great number of Christians in Lebanon, you now have an influx of uh, Syrians, um, refugees, uh, Muslims, and it's, it's kind of disturbing the balance um, that exists in that country. And so you have, uh, you know, protests, I guess, beginning to uh, kind of foment as the people feel disenfranchised and they feel um, overburdened and they feel like the, the current political system, uh, which is increasingly uh, influenced by Islamic powers in the region, um, to be not necessarily representative of uh, the people on the ground. So it's a, right. there's a, a lot of religious complexity uh, there, and it's, it's not just your typical kind of political uh, uh, protest. So I'm going to read the walk-off paragraph um, again from uh, Robert Nicholson's piece. It is uh, You can find it through Providence Magazine's website, but you can also find it at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the walk-off paragraph is this. Lebanon can't be a Christian state. That ship sailed in the 1940s. If Lebanon serves no, uh, no purpose distinct from its neighbors, why should it exist? The failure to answer this question lies at the heart of the country's instability, harming Christians and Muslims alike. Without a cogent sense of national identity and a vision for its future, Lebanon's economic and political decline and its manipulation of foreign powers will only get worse. So we just wanted to highlight that this morning. Um, I do think that oftentimes when we read the international news, if we don't understand the, the religious uh, conversations that are happening in the background of every political conversation and every um, socioeconomic conversation, we actually miss the point. And so that's what you guys at Providence Magazine really help us do each and every day. Um, again, I'm talking with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can check it out at ProvidenceMagazine.com. He and I will be right back. So I'm continuing my conversation um, with Drew Griffin from Providence Magazine. You can follow him on Twitter at DG underscore NYC. He is coming to us live from the streets of New York City because he's locked out of his building. And so if the uh, street noise gets uh, gets too chaotic, we're going to Drew already knows we're going to drop the call. Um, Drew, sure. I heard Bill uh, Gertz say on Thursday that um, all of the attention that we are paying to the Ukraine, although, you know, important at some level, 
um, that Ukraine is a sideshow to a sideshow and that the real existential threat uh, is communist China, the uh, the Communist Party in China and the communist Chinese um, pursuit of what he described as uh, as you know a desire for for world domination. Remind us what is happening to Christians in China and China's campaign to silence Americans and religious freedom there. Um, and then invite people to uh, to listen to your most recent podcast because I think that that would be helpful for them as well. Sure. No, I think um, that assessment is absolutely correct. Um, out of all of the news stories that we're following here kind of domestically, whether it's impeachment or uh, Ukraine or um, uh, any of those um, uh, kind of concerns, the, the big simmering threat on the international front is China and uh, what uh, China's kind of grand strategy. And we have heard kind of pieces here and there on different fronts, whether it's on the corporate front or the humanitarian front or the technological front about, you know, Chinese aggression, uh, their theft of intellectual property, their oppression of Christians um, throughout their country and Uyghur Muslims. Uh, we, we hear all of these kind of isolated stories, uh, but what we are trying to do at Providence and what we talked about in the podcast that we released last week uh, with two um, uh, experts, uh, Nate Fikarsik and Emily de la Brouille, who uh, own a uh, consulting uh, research firm called Radar Lock. Uh, what they've really kind of tapped into is to, to look and see that there is a, a large, grand, holistic, unified strategy that China is implementing right now to um, uh, basically reshape the world in its own image. And the persecution of Christians that we are that we're hearing about, the persecution of Uyghur Muslims that we're hearing about in Xinjiang, um, where they are interring uh, uh, millions of Muslims into re-education camps. They're taking them away from their homes. Uh, stories are now coming out that they are um, forcibly wedding um, Chinese um, uh, men to Uyghur Muslim women in order to begin to change the, the ethnic makeup of, uh, of that group. All of this uh, activity is part of a grand strategy on the part of China to purge itself of anything that doesn't resemble uh, the communist totalitarian ideology. And um, they are systematically going throughout the world and uh, offering aid and offering assistance and offering technology um, and the rest of the world is lapping it up. But what is coming with the price of that technology, the price of that aid, the price of that assistance is that um, they, China steals the intellectual property that they get from these other countries and they begin to weave themselves into these other countries' cultures, uh, making demands. And um, there is a deep uh, moral strategy here and a moral threat that the United States has to be um, – uh, woke to, that we need to uh, understand and appreciate and uh, deal not just in a haphazard way, you know, one-off issue by one-off issue, but in a holistic way uh, to view China as a threat. So, it's, yes, it's a huge uh, story. It's definitely, I think, a cause for concern. Christian brothers and sisters throughout China, their churches are being demolished. Um, They're being th uh, thrown into hiding. Uh, but I think what you know, we know is that ultimately the, the Church of uh, Jesus Christ is going to prevail. 
and that, uh, you know, the gates of hell aren't going to uh, prevail against it. And we've also seen that the one thing that will ensure um, Christian uh, explosive growth is persecution. Um, and we would never pray for persecution. We pray that, you know, our brothers and sisters undergoing persecution um, are relieved. Uh, but we know that uh, the, the church in China, uh, uh, on all reports that we get from missionaries and kind of underground, is uh, exploding in growth despite all of this. Um, so uh, China's efforts ultimately, I think, will fail. But it's still a huge threat to the Christians there and a major concern for us here in the U.S. So let me just remind our listeners, I've had recent conversations with uh, with Ruth Kramer and with Voice of the Martyrs, uh, Todd Nettleton, uh, both about issues related to um, the persecution of our Christian brothers and sisters in China and the status of the church and um, the the systematic work of the communist Chinese government, not only to tear down physical church buildings, but to tear down uh, the Church of Jesus Christ in terms of uh, the way that parents are able to even educate their children in the things of the faith. And so let's just be mindful of these things. Let's be praying the news on this front. Uh, let me encourage people to check out um, episode 55 of the Providence podcast. You can find it at providencemag.com. Uh, and uh, they got uh, lots of podcasts there, but this one is called China and the Great Network Power. Um, Drew, let's um, let's let's jump quickly here um, and talk talk briefly about what's going on in Algeria. Um, I'll admit to you, my geography is bad enough. I'm not even really sure where that is. Sure, yeah, Algeria is a, a country in northern Africa, um, and uh, the the problem there, the reports that we're getting, is that uh, it is becoming increasingly increasingly. Um, as a Muslim-majority country, uh, an oppressive regime regime towards um, uh, Christians and churches. A number of uh, large evangelical Protestant churches have been shut down. I think it was close to six or seven, I believe. And the State Department has a, a report, um, uh, their, their um, international religious freedom um, uh, section there within the State Department released a report earlier this year in a ministerial uh, that kind of graded different nations on the availability of religious freedom and the presence of persecution. And Algeria scored um, uh, about as low as you can get. And so it's it's seemingly a rising um, threat there for um, uh, the people in Algiers. And uh, it's uh, a, a cause for concern uh, and definitely a, a cause uh, uh, for uh, prayer, and it's also just part of a trend that we're seeing in North Africa. Whether it's um, uh, Egyptians and Coptic Christians, uh, whether it's uh, Christians in Algeria, whether it's uh, Christians in you know Syria or northern Iraq, or um, those who are um, kind of fleeing now the the Turkish threat um, as it pushes into kind of the Kurdish region. Um, it's it's uh, not a safe place right now for for Christians to be. All right. Uh, that, we're going to have to leave it right there today. Um, Drew Griffin, thank you so much. You guys can check out more at ProvidenceMag.com. I highly recommend um, another piece actually by Robert Nicholson called Hurt Turkey Where It Hurts and Help Armenia. Um, and just a highlight there that the U.S. Congress, the House, did pass a resolution commemorating the Armenian genocide. And um, we certainly want to acknowledge and recognize that as well. We talked about that uh, here 
um, on the air already. And so just want to remind everybody, mnnonline.org is where uh, is where you can find the article about uh, churches in Algeria forced to close. You can always get good information at persecution.com from Voice of the Martyrs. And at the intersection of um, of what I would describe as international affairs, uh, U.S. foreign policy and religion, particularly Christianity, check out ProvidenceMag.com. Drew Griffin, thanks so much. Thanks, Carmen. We hope you find the keys to the kingdom yeah, thank and you. to the building. Thank All right. Thanks, man. We'll be right <laughs> back. So uh, thank you to the listener who texted in this morning on the text line. Remember, you can always do that. Um, you can text me at 877-933-2484 every single day. Is that right, Paul? I'm like doing that from memory, and then my brain is resisting that number. Is that right? Yeah, that's always, it's always open. You can always text. I know. Will you give the number? Oh, can you read it? it yeah, should be like 877-933-2484. Right Okay, so I, I like right. I should have it up in front of me where I am, and yeah, I don't. Probably. So there you go. That's good. Um, okay, so the, this listener um, is communicating in response to my probably opening conversation, my opening salvo at the beginning of the show, um, and this is a, a testimony. So I want to read it. Um, uh, the, this individual says, "I know it's tempting to project our feelings on other people, but we have to resist this temptation." I work with Congolese refugees every week. Uh, twice a week. They are resilient and tenacious. They have real grit. Some of them uh, have left part of their families in the Congo, and they still arrive at English class with big smiles on their faces, even though they work six days a week. God gives them strength uh, that we really can't even describe. Yeah, I, I absolutely, um, I resonate with that. Um, I would um, I would be tempted to ask, uh, you know, as I'm deepening a relationship with an individual, hey, when I say the word home, where does your heart go? When I say the word home, where does your heart go? Um, that's really the conversation that I'm seeking to provoke. It is, um, it's a conversation about home. And for those of us who are Christians, at some point, the answer to that question needs to be um, Jesus. It's not about a physical place here on the earth. It's about Christ and his kingdom. Um, do I long for home? Do I long for the Father's house in the same way that Paul describes, you know, to live as Christ, but to die as gain because I get more Christ, to get to be with Jesus. Um, does your heart long for home in that way? Uh, and and then when we talk about, you know, the things of the earth, it's not insignificant that our families live in places where we do not live. And when we talk about home, our heart runs there. Our heart runs to people, not necessarily to places. And so when you say the word home and when you are talking with somebody who is far from their, their physical home of origin— it's a wonderful um, heart place to talk with another person because we do toil. We do work, many of us, six days a week, uh, many of us in, uh, in jobs that, you know, maybe we don't prefer. But the reality is that um, we're doing so for a reason, and that is often about people. It's often about providing for people, the people who we love back home. And so that's a conversation worth having. If you are in a relationship with refugees, as this listener is, I encourage that conversation. When I say the word home... Where does your heart go? Uh, you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with Peter Kapsner. Um, LeBron James, now, if you were to Google it right now, LeBron James is going to pop in the headlines because last night, uh, his third consecutive triple-double for the Lakers. Now, I don't even really quite know what a triple-double is, so I'm going to ask Peter, who's much more of a sports dude than I am. Um, but then we're actually going to talk about the reality that um, LeBron James, as we were just talking about earlier in the show, in terms of 
being homeless. Did you know that when he was in the fourth grade, he missed 83 days of school because he and his mom did not have a stable place to live. They moved at least six times that he remembers during that one school year. So next up, I'm going to talk with Peter Kapsner about resilience. I'm going to talk about uh, LeBron James's third consecutive triple-double last night for the Lakers, whatever in the world that is. And then the extraordinary work that's being uh, accomplished in Akron, Ohio, by the keeping of a promise by LeBron James to a bunch of street kids. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When I was in Sunday school growing up, I remember learning about stewardship and that God wanted me to be a good steward of his creation. But at the time, I was pretty clueless about what that meant. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. I finally heard an explanation that made sense. We come into the world with nothing and we leave the world with nothing. So really, everything we have is on loan from God. As a good steward, you have the privilege of managing your resources wisely until they eventually go back into his hands. And those resources include your talents, your time, and your finances. So, before you make decisions about how to spend money and time or share your unique talents, ask yourself, am I being a good steward of what God has given me? Or am I too often giving into self-serving impulses? Ask God for wisdom. He'll help you answer those questions. And he'll help you live a life filled with confidence, contentment, and generosity. Kapsner is back, and I couldn't be more grateful for the way God lines things up because Peter actually knows about basketball. And so, um, Peter, when I um, when I jumped on the Twitter machine and wanted to find out what was trending, what was trending was uh, hashtag Washed King, which of course drew me in immediately. And it was LeBron James basically uh, mocking those who said that he's washed up because apparently. Um, he did something really uh, extraordinary in producing his third consecutive triple-double for the Lakers. Okay, what is a triple-double, and therefore, what is a third consecutive triple-double, and why is it so impressive that LeBron James did this? Yeah, it's his age 35 season, Carmen. So people did say that he was probably going to be washed up. He'd have to take some time on the bench. He couldn't play so many minutes as he has in the past. And he is uh, seems to be on a mission this year to prove everybody wrong. So a triple-double is that you get double digits in three different offensive categories in basketball. So usually the traditional one is in points and rebounds and assists. But you could do it with steals. You could do it with blocks. Anytime you get three different uh, double-digit figures in a category and the reason why it's such a big deal is that uh, Oscar Robertson is an is an all-time NBA Hall of Fame player and he once averaged a triple-double in an entire season. So if over the 80 games or so, he was that was his average in all these different categories. And what that tends to indicate is that you have a complete basketball player. And that's what LeBron seems to be out on a mission to do, is to show that he is a complete basketball player. He doesn't just score. He doesn't just pass. He doesn't just rebound. He can do all of those things. And i got to tell you, I watched some of the game last night, and uh, it is his third straight triple-double, as you referenced. And it's a pretty impressive feat right now. 
Does that mean in three six in three games, one after another? Yeah, exactly. So oh, yeah, okay. that, yeah. The Los Angeles Lakers have been on the road on a road trip, and they have dominated their opponents primarily because of LeBron. And again, at thirty five years old, he is ancient by NBA standards, having started at the age of nineteen. I think this is his seventeenth season, so he should be resting quite a bit, and he shows no signs of slowing down right now. So um, I had actually teed up a completely different LeBron James story for us to talk about today. And so that's where I'm going to head next, because, you know, again, just because God has such a great sense of humor, he had reason for LeBron James to be in the in the big super duper headlines today related to his third consecutive triple double. Um, But uh, LeBron was already in the headlines this week for really what I would describe as a much more uh, extraordinary Um, reality. And that's something that is going on in Akron, Ohio. And we talked about this um, when uh, when LeBron James started the I Promise School in Akron, Ohio. Um, But what has happened recently is that other people have begun to sort of recognize that, okay, in addition to this really extraordinary opportunity for these urban kids to have an excellent education and a learning environment where people are really, really committed to them staying on track and moving ahead, other uh, other people have um, recognized that there are other needs in these kids' lives. So talk a little bit about what is going on at the I Promise School in Akron, Ohio, which was started by LeBron James. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch. And I have to admit that I have not been a LeBron James fan through the course of his career. I sort of thought it was all about LeBron and, and he was building more of a name for himself. But uh, I have to, in fairness, maybe start shifting my perception a little bit. He grew up in Akron. He has had a commitment to Akron to really use the money and the status and the power that he has achieved in the NBA to turn around and give back in really substantial ways. And so he did uh, last year open a school that uh, if you got into the school that you just referenced, you were guaranteed to have free tuition when you graduated from that school to the University of Akron. So it was this beautiful, educational, high-quality opportunity for these young kids that otherwise would have been disadvantaged and a bit impoverished. And what he realized a year into it, which was really interesting, is that they couldn't actually take advantage of the educational opportunity that they were given because some of their simple needs like shelter and food uh, and a place of safety were really not being met. So he's followed up with this development of the school with an ability to really uh, come around the kids' basic social needs. And so he wrote this. This is the quote from uh, yesterday that we found that it's impossible to help them learn if they're struggling to survive. If they are hungry, if they have no heat in the freezing winter, if they live in fear of their safety, they can't move into this school the way that he would like them to. We want this place to be their home where they feel safe, supported, and loved, knowing we're right there with them every step of the way until they get back on their feet. And so you're talking about somebody who is caring holistically, not just for the educational needs of these kids, but across the board for them. And my wife, Hallie, taught in uh, an impoverished community in North Minneapolis about 15, 20 years ago. And uh, that was exactly what she experienced in the classroom day in and day out, is meeting the, helping to meet the social needs of these parents that were often working two, three jobs just simply to survive. And uh, the kids coming to school tired and uh, maybe not as well-fed as they would have liked to. And sometimes she would just let them sleep right in the middle of the class just because that's simply what they needed. They couldn't learn until they felt like they could sort of let down in a safe environment. And so I think it it just speaks to a lot of different things, Carmen. It speaks to what home is, as you referenced. It speaks to uh, providing for people's basic social needs so that they can take advantage of the opportunities in front of them. There's a lot there to sift through. So I remember when we watched the movie uh, with our family, Black Panther, and at the very end, we actually had a conversation about watching to see who in the African-American community 
um, might be inspired to sort of take the advantage that they had experienced, um, you know, in, in no small measure because of the American dream and um, and really change local communities where they could have an impact in ways that, um, you know, frankly, that white folks cannot. It's just it is different. And so I've been really encouraged to see that it's not only LeBron James, it's now um, layers uh, it's it's concentric circles of of African-American leaders yep. in in community in I mean, in Akron. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking here about the guys from graduate hotels. I've never heard of graduate hotels. I've never heard of Ben Weprin and Maverick Carter and Randy Mims. But these guys took a tour of the school and um, and they ask the right question. And this is the question that every single one of us should ask in our local school. No matter what your local school is, this is the question you should ask. Um, what What do you still need? Yep. What do you still need? What do the students still need? And the answer blew them away. The answer was housing. Mm. Housing. Well, these guys um, from this hotel chain decided, you know what? We could buy this apartment building that's for sale, and we could renovate it, and we could then provide it as transitional um, housing for these students and their families when they uh, when they need it and so that they will have a stable, safe place to live, because having a stable, place, safe place to live just it just multiplies. I mean, it's a it's a it's a factor that you cannot even estimate in terms of a child's ability to learn and then succeed. So I found it a hugely inspiring story. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, each one of us can kind of look around our own communities and say, I may not be able to build an I promise school, but I could go to my local school and I could ask, what do you still need? And then I could think about who do I know that we could all get together and we could make a real difference in that one situation for, um, you know, for our local community. All right, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to uh, continue a little bit on this theme. We're going to pivot, though, to uh, former President Jimmy Carter, his work with Habitat for Humanity, but also um, his statement recently that um, he's totally at ease with death. I love that. We'll be right back. President Jimmy Carter, evangelical Christian, um, continued to teach Sunday school even while he was the president of the United States. He'd sneak out of the White House so he could go uh, teach Sunday school. Continues to teach Sunday school uh, in his home church, in his hometown uh, of Plains, Georgia, and uh, was recently featured, um, celebrated again for his work with Habitat for Humanity, even at the age of 95. Um, and, uh, and and that's just it, it's incredibly inspiring. But it's another headline about Jimmy Carter that really caught my attention this week, Peter. Um, and it's this one. Jimmy Carter, 95, says Christian faith allows him to be, quote, completely at ease with death. Um, this is uh, this is something that is pretty provocative to read in the USA Today, in Time, in People. I mean, pretty much across every major media outlet because he is who he is. And so, um, you know, talk talk with us about 
how comfortable Jimmy Carter is with death and what kind of witness that is to the world that's so uncomfortable with death. Yeah, it is. In my mind, Carmen, it is a profound witness that even goes right to the heart of the gospel and the good news that we uh, claim to spread. And he said when he had brain cancer in 2015, when that diagnosis had spread all the way through his brain, he said, I assumed that I was going to die a fairly quick death. And uh, the prayer that he prayed in that moment was really compelling to me. He said, I didn't ask God to let me live. And I think that's the very understandable prayer of anybody who's faced with a pretty tragic illness situation or somebody who has a lot of uncertainty in front of them. But he said, I didn't ask God to let me live. I asked God to give me a proper attitude towards death. And then he said this, and then I found that I was absolutely and completely at ease with death. And boy, in a, in a culture, in a country, and I think all of us really wrestle with doing everything we can to, to fight against death. And again, for very understandable reasons, that prayer about getting a proper attitude towards it, knowing that we all are going to die. I don't know, Carmen, how you can possibly get to a proper attitude towards death unless uh, you really are in the belief that that tomb was empty at the end of the day, that Jesus rose on that third day, that he actually beat death. And the primary witness of the New Testament gospel for those believers who are struggling and often often dying for their faith wasn't so much about Good Friday and the forgiveness of sins and the rightly ordered relationship between human beings and God. And and don't mishear me, that is obviously a, a significant and central part of the gospel as well. But I know that growing up too often, maybe the gospel got reduced down to that one dimension of it, to the to the rightly ordered relationship between God and humankind. And really, when Paul says these things, like if, if he was not raised, if the resurrection hadn't happened, our faith would be in vain, meaning that Easter Sunday had to have happened in order for Good Friday to truly take effect. And what Easter Sunday represents is the idea that the power of sin and death has been fully broken. And it doesn't mean that we aren't subject to it. It doesn't mean that it isn't going to affect us and create a whole lot of misery in our lives. But what it does mean is that there's something deeper, there's something more profound, there's a, there's a greater promise and a greater hope that really is sort of threading its way through the, the spiritual realm to which we can tap in. And, and, and President Carter absolutely tapped in to that hope and saying, I am going to die. But how can you possibly be at ease with death unless you know that uh, even if you die, in the words of Paul, yet you live? And I think it's just, you've been talking about home this morning, and uh, the biblical text and the witness is clear that our home is not in this earth. We are strangers just passing through, that our true home really is in heaven. And we're kind of in this great in-between time in, uh, in, in walking through this world towards our home. And, and so to even develop the kind of heart and the kind of mind, not just when you're 93 and maybe facing death uh, in that way as Jimmy Carter, but for a whole lifetime, to be willing to die in little ways so that you're prepared to die in those big ways and, and see that God still has your back even as you swim through those waters of death, that is a profound witness. I, I don't know of something that's more to the heart of the gospel than that. I, I, I find the, um, the witness of the 39th president of the United States, now the oldest uh, living former president, um, you know, to, to reach the age that he has reached, um, I find his testimony and witness so joyful, so compelling, so honest, so clear. Um, he has a platform that he could obviously use in lots of ways if he would you know, choose to do so. And he is choosing to use the platform God has given him at this stage of life to teach uh, a Sunday school class every Sunday morning that, you know, that God makes him able um, at Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, and 400 people, you know, sit and listen to him teach the scriptures. And 
the um, this this conversation about death um, happened this last Sunday. And uh, uh, Jimmy Carter taught for 45 minutes. You can actually mm. watch the teaching at the Maranatha Baptist Church um, Facebook page. Um, and he's teaching about the trials of Job. I mean, that's what he's that's the portion of the Bible that he's in. So that's what he's teaching on right now in his Sunday school class. And it's in that context that this conversation emerged. It's about suffering. It's about the realities that we face in life. And it's about the Christian answer to those questions. And here's a real Christian, you know, giving the God honest answer to the question. And that is, I don't I don't fear death because I know I'm going home. Right. I know I'm going home. So, uh, Peter, let's leave it right there today. Um, I love our conversations every week. Thank you so much for um, roaming around with us today from the basketball court uh, all the way home to heaven. We appreciate it. No, so love being with you, Carmen. Thanks. Have a great rest of the day. That's mutual. All right. We'll be right back. I go home. Going home. Where I belong. So let me just say the word one more time, and the word is home. When I say the word home, where does your heart go? Where does your heart go? Um, So where is your heart's home? And my heart's home is certainly ultimately with the Father in heaven. Uh, My husband and I, Jim, uh, frequently just say to one another, even, you know, when times are hard or when we're facing a particular challenge, just kind of look at each other and, uh, and one says to the other, you know, all the way home, all the way home to the Father's house. Um, that's the journey that we're on together as a couple all the way home to the Father's house. That's the journey that every Christian is on uh, all the way home as pilgrims making progress every single day toward, uh, you know, that celestial city. Um, and here on earth, we have our homes as well. And so where does your heart run when I say the word home? Um, and maybe spend some time today thanking God for um, for all the love. For all the love of that place and even this time. All right, we got another hour together. Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.